we have the great opportunity this morning to open God's Word. And I want to ask you to be turning to Mark chapter 3. As we get started, I want to go ahead and make an apology that I had planned to already make. And it's kind of ironic that the clock in the back is on the wrong time. Because uh, this morning we've got a lot to cover <coughs> Excuse me, in this passage. And so I want to go ahead and apologize. If you don't get a lot of this, of, of me looking at you, that you sometimes just really want from somebody speaking to you, I'm doing that because I cannot afford any rabbit trails this morning. So I'm going to be looking down and I'm going to be focusing on my notes this morning because I can't afford to be running off somewhere that I didn't intend to go. So let me apologize by starting with that. But as you're turning to Mark chapter 3, I want to, many of you know we've been going through the book of Mark as a church. We've been doing this as our, our new sermon series. We're preaching through the book of Mark. Mark presents Jesus' life in two basic acts. And it's very important this morning as we get started to understand what these two basic acts are. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, presents Jesus' identity and his purpose. The first eight chapters of Mark present Jesus and who he is. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And then chapters 9 through 16, we actually see the reason in which Jesus came, which was to die on the cross. But see, these two things work together. It is actually in who Jesus is that he can actually, in fact, fulfill the purpose in which he came to do. So it's important for us this morning to understand who Jesus is. I want to tell you in your bulletin, if you would like to turn in the back of your bulletin, I have a, it is a small outline. It's not very detailed, but there's a quote or two there. We'll be referring to some of this, but there is a, there's an outline in your bulletin this morning that you can follow along. Now, you see the title of the, that I gave the sermon this morning is, Can I Be Unforgiven? I mentioned this at the uh, bus stop, uh, taking Marielle to the bus the other morning. And I said this at the bus stop. Somebody asked, hey, I heard you're preaching this Sunday. What are you preaching? I said, if, if you can be unforgiven. You know, some eyes kind of look like that. I mean, it, it just doesn't sound right, does it? We, we don't want to think about being unforgiven. We talk about being forgiven. Well, this morning as we get to Mark chapter 3, we're going to be talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should have these little blue hardback Bibles on the road there. And if you're not in the habit of using those this morning, humor me, get one. I'll make it easy on you. You can turn to page 838. I came in this morning, I looked it up. It may even seem kind of awkward. But look down your aisle if you have one. If you see somebody that doesn't have a Bible, it's awkward. Lean over and hand it to them if you have one of those sitting by you. Turn to page 838. I want you to be following along with me as we read from Mark chapter 3 this morning. But as you're turning there, let me set up this scene a little bit more for you. It's actually important for us to understand that there's a very logical connection in what has already happened in the book of Mark. In particular, in Mark chapter 2 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Now let me read Mark 3, verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out and they took their precious time. No, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, against Jesus, on how to destroy him, on how to kill Jesus. So already we see that all the people around Jesus are saying, who does he think he is? That's what's going on. 
this Jesus, who does he think he is? So this morning, we're going to be looking at the question, who is Jesus? We're going to, if you'll look on that outline, the first point is that Jesus' identity is at stake. The second thing that we're going to look at, we're just going to be looking at the forgiveness of sins. I mean, how beautiful does that sound? We're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins this morning. And then thirdly, there's actually, there's a little bit of a typo. The outline that I sent over, and I want, I want to ask you to write this in at the end of the third point. It's supposed to say, the possibility of a soul lost forever in hell. That just didn't make it on the outline. I sent that over, though. It's supposed to say, the possibility of a soul lost forever in hell. So what we know is that people were saying of Jesus that he's crazy. That's why we're going to actually begin reading in our passage, starting with verse 20. We're going to read verses 20 and 21 this morning as we get started. Well, if the book of Mark has two main acts that I mentioned earlier, Jesus' identity and Jesus' purpose, then we need to understand that people wanted Jesus dead because they didn't understand who he was. That's important. For us to understand this morning. It's because of what Jesus said that he was going to do that they said he's crazy. And i got to tell you, he either is crazy or he's exactly who he said that he is. When you look at the promises that Jesus gave, he is either exactly who he said he is or he is crazy. So this morning, I want you asking yourself Who is this Jesus in your life? Not just this historical figure that maybe we grew up, some of you, hurting stories. Jesus did some really cool things, turning water into wine, you know, all this kind of stuff. Maybe, you know, you can take it or leave it, believe what you, if it helps you, then believe those things. I'm not, who is Jesus in your life? His identity is at stake. And what I want to tell you is, his identity is at stake and knowing who Jesus is means everything about what He's promised that He will do for you. And I want us to end up seeing that He's already done it. So this morning, we're going to read from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Now typically, we, we would stand out of reverence for God's Word, but this morning, I want, I want everybody with a Bible in their hands. I want you to sit where you are. I want it open to Mark 3. I want you to follow along with me. Mark 3, starting with verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, when his family heard it, you see that? Those close to him. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Fathers, we've opened your word this morning. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. I pray that you would just open our eyes, open our ears to hear that you are offering to each of us sitting in this room the full forgiveness of our sins. Lord, guide us as we go through this this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus' identity is at stake. Now, none of us in this room like to be misunderstood, do we? Do, do you enjoy being misunderstood when you say things? Do you enjoy being misrepresented in the things that you do? No. But I think all of us in this room have, have experienced the pain that is involved in being misunderstood, in being misrepresented. Maybe it's in your own house with your spouse. You really intended to do something you really thought was going to please him or please her. But then it was, why are you doing that? You're, you're doing that to aggravate me, aren't you? And, and you're just thinking, I really thought I was doing a good thing here. Maybe it's at work. Maybe you're really doing something to, to help your team out at work. The team that you work with, you all got a deadline. And they come in, and what do they think? You got there early, you're, you're trying to kiss up to the boss. You're doing this for personal gain. And all of a sudden, now everybody around the office hates you. You were doing that because you're so selfish. And you're sitting there going, oh my goodness. I really wanted to just help everybody out. And there you are, isolated, all alone, going, what did I do wrong? Jesus is being misunderstood. Jesus is being misrepresented. Now, verses 22 through 27 is about Jesus refuting who all of them say that he is. Really, probably even more, at the very least, he's refuting of who they're accusing him to be in cahoots with. So Jesus calls them to himself. That's verse 23. Verse 23 is about Jesus saying, come here. Now in all three accounts that we have of this, in the Bible, of all three accounts, Jesus is referred to in the third person. We know they're talking behind his back. In all three accounts, what does Jesus do? He calls them to himself and speaks to them in parables. What does that mean? means he spoke to them in words that they could understand. Jesus talks to us, speaks to us in words in which we can understand. So Jesus calls them over to himself, right up to his face, and he gives them the opportunity to express all of this to the one they actually are accusing. But we learn from verse 30 that they were unable to do so. All they can say is, he's of an unclean spirit. He's out of his mind. He's crazy. That's what they come up with. So Jesus points out, verses 22 through 27, he points out that the charge against him is ridiculous. Jesus says, get this, he says, if that were true, Satan would be fighting Satan. And that's why verse 27, I want you to look at verse 27 with me. We can't take verse 27 out. Verse 27 is in there for a very good reason. Verse 27 for us this morning, he says, But on the contrary, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Look, if somebody breaks into your house, all right, follow me here. Somebody breaks into your house, how many of you, when you hear that, that crash in the den, and maybe the wife wakes you up and says, honey, you got to go take care of that. I, I heard a crash. Somebody's in the house. How many of you roll out of bed, you walk in there, and you rub your eyes, and you look at the guy that's burglarizing you, and you say, hold on, man. You turn that lamp on over there. My eyes got to adjust. If you'll give me just a minute, I'm going to give you a hand with all this stuff. That TV's pretty heavy. Man, that's got that. That's a 50-inch. Let me help you with that. How many of you do that? Jesus is saying, that's ridiculous. Satan would be robbing himself. He points this out in verse 27. So what we're looking at is a comparison of two sides. That's what Jesus wants us to see. This is a comparison of two opposing sides of God and the devil. Now, I'm not talking about our little imaginary, maybe on your shoulder, devil that speaks little things into your ear that maybe you should or shouldn't do. I'm talking about the real Satan, the real devil. I'm talking about the one that came to Jesus that we read about in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. I'm talking about in Genesis, the same Satan, the same real devil that came in the form of a serpent who came to Adam and Eve and tempted them in which they fell. I'm talking about in Job, when we read in Job of God having this communication with Satan, with the devil, and he says, I give you my servant Job, just only don't take his life. Yet Job stays faithful to God. I'm talking about the real devil. Now, we're looking at these opposing sides. Now, Chris knew that I was going to be preaching on this passage. And he thought it would be kind of cute. He said, man, this is a great, great uh, opportunity for you to use your jokes, to use your favorite jokes. Okay? I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you two. I can't help it. But we like to compare things. We like to do comparisons. We like to contrast people against one another. My, I love the Chuck Norris and Jack Bauer jokes. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I love it. You know, the ones like Chuck Norris doesn't do a push-up. or when, when Chuck Norris does a push-up, he doesn't push himself up. He pushes the earth down. You know, or when, when Jack Bauer, when life gives Jack Bauer lemons, he uses them to kill terrorists. I, mean, it's, I love those jokes. But we're in the habit of making comparisons. We compare people. We pit sides against one another. And that's what's going on. Jesus is pointing out that Satan isn't fighting Satan. He's making sure we realize that these are two opposing sides. So, Jesus is casting out demons. Now, we read about these demons being cast out throughout, throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament. And Jesus ends up, he, he gives his apostles, these 12 unique disciples of Jesus, power to cast out and do very powerful things. But sometimes... We read things like this, that Jesus was casting out demons. And we kind of, we read over it and we're like, well, that's kind of cool. Especially when he sent them into the pigs and they ran off the cliff. If you're familiar with that story, we're like, that's, that's pretty cool. He's a powerful guy. But we miss something very important. If we don't stop, and we don't back up a little bit, and we don't ask the question, what in the world, is, what is Jesus doing by casting out demons? He is showing us that He has come to restore. Now get this. Jesus is showing us that He has come to restore that which Satan has been doing to men's souls and their bodies this whole time. 
Jesus, Jesus casting out demons, I love this. Jesus casting out demons is his way of coming and saying, guess what? The tables have turned. He's saying, I'm turning around. That ship is coming around. Jesus saying, I'm restoring that which the evil one has come to destroy. Jesus' identity is at stake. Not just here, not just a long time ago in these red letters. Jesus' identity is at stake in your life every day. You are making a decision every day about who Jesus is in your life, whether you realize it or not. Every one of us. Don't turn there. But I want to read from Colossians 2, verse 15. See, Jesus, in his showing the process of, of, of binding, this binding the strong man and entering his house, Jesus is showing and binding and curtailing, really, Satan's power. And ultimately, he shows us that it's in his purpose, because of who Jesus is, in his purpose, which was to come to die on the cross. Listen to Colossians two, fifteen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Probably, actually, as we study this passage, talking about demonic rulers and authorities, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now, if you're in the habit of reading your Bible, which I hope you are, if you're in the habit of reading your Bible, do you ever get to, to those words and they have the little numbers right above it for the footnotes? Do you ever pay attention to those footnotes in your Bible? Oftentimes we don't spend the time to look. The ESV footnote in Colossians 2.15, listen, listen to what it, what it says here for us. It's very helpful. It's very insightful. It says that we can translate Colossians 2.15 in the ending being, by triumphing over them in it. That is the cross. How did Jesus triumph over all evil? In it, the cross. In what? His purpose. But it's not going to mean a thing to you if you don't know who Jesus is, if His identity is not that He is the second person of the Trinity, that He is God, Savior in your life, it doesn't mean a hill of beans what He came to do to die on the cross. So Jesus' identity is at stake. So Jesus, through His work on the cross, He is actually, we're going to, we're going to use this, this illustration that we're given in Scripture. Jesus has entered into Satan's house and He has plundered His goods. He has taken His furniture. Now what do you think Satan's goods are? What are these goods and furniture and the things in which he wants to lock up and he wants to hold on to and doesn't want Jesus to have? He is desperately wanting to guard our souls. The ones that Jesus came to save. So Jesus is saying, I have triumphed over that through the cross. The second thing I want us to look at this morning is the forgiveness of sins. Now this, this passage this morning is a very introspective passage. It calls us to look inside ourselves. It's calling you and I this morning to do a little heart searching. So flip over two pages in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 18 through 21. Mark 7, starting verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Listen to verse 20. And he said, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come this list of stuff. Listen to this. From out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensual, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. So this morning, we're going to do a little heart searching. Sometimes I think we're prone to think about or prone to consider what God may not forgive me for. I get that. A lot of times we think about those things in which we've done, maybe those things in which we're doing that God may not forgive me for. But let us rather see and really rejoice. Y'all, we ought to be standing, we ought to keep a ladder leaned up at our house at all times that at the end of the day we come home, we climb the ladder, and we stand on our roofs and we yell, we scream, we proclaim. Because we are rejoicing, knowing what? That God is offering everyone sitting in this room, no exceptions. That God is offering every person sitting in this room, what? The forgiveness of sins. Hear that this morning. Process that this morning. Look in your bulletin at the first quote I have printed there. John Piper said of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, John Piper said, The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws himself forever with his convicting. And I want to add, this is my addition, this is Harrison's addition, I want to add in his convincing power which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting and convincing power so that we are nev- never able to repent and be forgiven. What does Scripture tell us over and over and over and over? Well, the one I read tells me to repent and believe. But it says to repent and believe in what? You will be saved. Repent and believe and you will be saved. We actually I didn't know it was going to be in our assurance of pardon this morning. But Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, You will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not if all the things in your life line up just right. You've got a chance at being saved. You will be saved. Now how many guarantees do you get in this life? How many assurances do you really enjoy on a day-to-day basis? Not many. Not any, really, that you can fully trust. You may be given some false guarantees. Jesus is giving us a guarantee. He's giving us an assurance. 
So God tells us that we have the forgiveness of sins. And we often, often talk about Romans 3. All fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we know that all men, all women need this forgiveness. It's not a question of who needs it. We all need it. That's the beautiful thing. It's offered to all of us. No exceptions. No matter what you've done. No matter what you're doing. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Don't turn there. But let me read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you just want to maybe write that down and look it up later. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. Look at me. Look, you've got to see this. It's a giant sweep. All. All of it. Have you ever wanted to go into your office? Do you have an office your desk is just covered with stuff? Do you ever want to go in your office? Not even out of anger. It just looks fun. You just want to go in there and just, and just sling it all off? It just looks fun. This is Jesus doing the big, huge sweep. All, all of it has been wiped clean. No exceptions. And I do want you to turn to Psalm 19. Psalm, Psalm 19 in the Old Testament Turn back with me. Some of you may recognize verse 14. I'm going to go ahead and start reading. We'll be in Psalm 19, verses 12, 13, and 14. In verse 12 of Psalm 19, we read, Who can discern errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What is David saying here in this psalm? He's saying, God, forgive me of the things I do out of ignorance. That's what he's saying in verse 12. He's saying, forgive me of the things that I do that I'm not even aware of. Look, you and I, we don't know. We we just can't grasp how truly sinful we are. Since we've been sitting in this room, in this worship service, we've sinned. That's how sinful we are. So David is saying, he's pleading, saying, forgive me of that which I'm ignorant to. But let me tell you something. Let me share something with you this morning. It's not your ignorance that condemns you, it's your sinfulness. That's important. It's not your unawareness of your sin that condemns you to hell forever. It's your sinfulness. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What in the world do you think a presumptuous sin is? I had fun looking at this. i got to tell you. What do you think a presumptuous sin is? Presumptuous is when you take certain liberties. It basically means you're arrogant. You're very presuming. Found that I was arrogant this week. Imagine that. All right. Here's the example that the dictionary uses. I want to read this sentence for you. I'm kind of the guy in the spelling bee to buy more time. I'm like, can you use that in a sentence, please? So I go, I'm going to read you this sentence. It's a little presumptuous of you to assume that I'm your new best friend because I invited you along. You get that? What, what presumptuous is? So what in the world is a presumptuous sin? Well, some of us in our Life Group series, the, what we do on Sunday evening, some of us are going through a book called Respectable Sins. And it talks about sins such as, pretty good list here, it talks about sins such as anxiety, frustration, 
discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control. Has it gotten to you yet? Impatience and irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness. It keeps going. The book's point is that this is a list of sins that we tolerate. I tolerate my little problem of being irritable. It's, it's a subtle little sin. I, I tolerate that. I, I tolerate my little problem with unthankfulness. I'm not as thankful as I ought to be. So I, I tolerate that. That's one of my subtle sins. But what, what gets me is when I really think about it, the reason I tolerate my irritability or I tolerate my unthankfulness is because I truly don't believe that my little old problem with being irritable every now and then really deserves total and complete condemnation. I really don't. Why? Because I compare myself. I find somebody else worse off than me. At least I'm not that guy making headlines. That's a subtle sin that I've got. I don't truly have a, a knowledge of my own sin to realize that, yes, my little old problem with being irritable really deserves total and complete condemnation. Now, verse 14 of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you see the continuing connection between our mouths and our hearts? For from within a person, out of the heart of man, we are defiled. If you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Who is Jesus? We're talking about his identity. Jesus is the one who knows your heart. He is the one who searches the heart. He's the one who knows in the depths of your heart. He knows those sins that the ones closest to you don't even know about. You know that stuff that maybe you think nobody knows about? Jesus knows about it. The only one who knows your true heart is the only one who can what? Forgive you. How awesome is that? The only person who truly even knows you is the only person sitting here offering you full forgiveness. Complete remission of your sin. That is a wonderful connection. Do you see that? The only one who knows your heart is the only one who can forgive it. And He's standing there offering it to you. Saying, grab it. Hold it. But we are so presumptuous about ourselves that we what? That we must have the Holy Spirit's convicting and convincing power so that we are enabled to repent, meaning that we see a need of a Savior and we believe and we can be forgiven. You and I, can, we can't comprehend. There's no way that we can do it to comprehend total separation from our Father in heaven. We can't do it. There's no way. We can't understand that. But this doesn't change the fact that it's real. I want to unpack that briefly. This respectable sins book 
that I was mentioning. It refers to our presumptuous sins or these tolerable, subtle sins as a cancerous tumor. And that our unawareness of it doesn't change the fact that it's still there and that it will kill you. The author says, this is his testimony about himself and his wife, says, When my wife visited her doctor on June 19, 1987, she had no idea there was a malignant tumor in her abdominal area. And even her capable physicians who successfully treated the tumor failed to detect that it had already metastasized into her lymph system. In fact, the word deceitful, which is a moral term, can be used to describe the way cancer often seems to operate. One of the common truths about cancer is that it can often grow undetected until it reaches a crisis stage or even a stage that is terminal. He says that if we, he says that we do fail to reckon with the reality of sin still dwelling in us, but just because we don't see and we don't know that that cancerous tumor is there does not change the fact that it will kill you. It's not your ignorance that condemns you to hell. It's your sinfulness. takes us to our last point this morning. The possibility of a lost soul forever in hell. Now be honest with me. That sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? It does. That sounds kind of creepy. A lot of people actually refer this, refer to this as an awful truth. But it is a truth at the very least. And we must not, cannot shut our eyes to it and look the other way. It's very plainly before us this morning in Mark chapter 3. I mentioned earlier about this Bible that we're reading from that I wanted you all to be following along with me. The Bible that I hope that you read. The Bible that I hope you believe is true. If there's no such thing as eternal damnation, if there's no chance of a soul being lost forever in hell... Don't even take that Bible home with you. I'll discard it for you. I'll throw it away for you this morning. If there is no chance for our souls being lost forever in hell, the Bible doesn't carry a whole lot of weight for me. But it's because Scripture puts this before us this morning that we have to hold on to it. We have to cling to it. And as we're about to see, cling to the only one who can point us in the right direction. Now, have your ears ever been tickled? kind of like saying that, but have your ears ever been tickled, meaning they've kind of been flirted with, maybe the teachings or something you've heard, maybe that God is love, which He is, but maybe God is love. He's such a loving God that this must prove the impossibility of a loving God permitting an everlasting hell. Now, some people say that if that helps you to believe in hell, then go ahead. If, if, if believing in hell helps you to be a better person, they say, go ahead. It's one of those speculative questions or speculative doctrines that we have that we take from the Bible that you can, you can take it or leave it. The Bible is clear and calls us not to be ashamed to believe that there is an eternal God, that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Sin is an infinite evil. Therefore, what? An infinite evil requires an infinite atonement of infinite value, bringing us out of the consequences of it. For the wages of sin is what? 
It's okay, you can say it. The wages of sin is death. What does that mean? For when you sin, what you've earned is death. For the wages of sin is death. Guess what? That's why salvation is free. Because you can't earn it. You never would earn it. What we earn through our sin is death. That's why salvation is offered to you for free. Without money, come to Christ and buy. We sing that song from up here. So with regard to the truthfulness behind the possibility of our souls being lost forever in hell, Jesus, in verse 28, look at this with me. In verse 28, Jesus says, absolutely. Actually, when we look at this first word in 28, in the ESV it's translated truly, that's Jesus saying, amen. Jesus says, amen. What I'm about to tell you is of the utmost truthfulness and faithfulness. Sometimes we see it as verily. Meaning, truly, I say to you. The New King James actually translates this. Assuredly, I say to you. Jesus is saying, Amen. What I'm about to tell you is true. Now remember that I said something earlier about we don't get too many guarantees in this life. Jesus is giving us a guarantee. Now why, does he, why is Jesus able to give us this warning? It's because of who He is. It is in His identity that He can give us this warning. Remember Psalm 19 that I read earlier? I'm going to conclude with this. You remember Psalm 19 that I read earlier? The first verse I read, verse 12, remember what it said? Who can discern His errors? Who knows my heart and your heart? The one who is the only one who can clean it. Remember that motion that I did? I wanted you all to look, that wiping clean. Do you remember that? A pure heart, completely clean. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Verse 4 says, He who has clean hands and a what? A pure heart. Thank you. Yes. Clean hands and a pure heart. And does not lift his soul to the false promises of joy and satisfaction that are around us in this world. If you've never held on to this doctrine, if you've never held on to this idea of the forgiveness of sins, and you've held on to it like it was your own child, falling off into a bottomless pit, if you've never held on to it with a grip like that, then this morning what I tell you to do is to come to the cross and grab it with that kind of intensity. Grab it the way you won't let go. Because 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift in Jesus It's so inexpressible that we don't even know what to say. So you know what? That's a beautiful thing. We don't have to say anything. We come to Christ. We come to the cross knowing that He has already dealt with and paid for our sins. He's wiped it clean. And He says, come to Me. Rest in Me. 
I am where you find the forgiveness of your sins. I don't care what you're struggling with. And don't. Jesus doesn't care what you are struggling with this morning. He knows there's nothing too big for him. Nothing too large for the cross to take care of. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, there are some weighty things in your word. There are some tough truths in your word. Heavenly Father, we live weighty lives. We have things that burden us, that stress us, that give us those subtle sins of anxiety and irritability. But Lord, we know that you have come. We know that you don't hold any of that against us if we confess with our mouth that you are our Lord and we believe in our hearts that, God, you raised Jesus from the dead and He right now is sitting at your right hand in His place of power, being our King. So, Lord, I pray that, Jesus, your identity would reign supreme in our lives every single day. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.